0: We come this morning to our next installment in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you have your copy of Scripture, I would invite you to turn there with me to John chapter 14. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are looking at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read down to verse 14, and this is all part of what theologians have titled the upper room discourse, beginning in John 13 when Jesus enters that upper room until he closes his time with his disciples in John 17, when he prays what has been called the high priestly prayer. Um, This is also been called his paschal discourse, his suffering discourse. Jesus is very close to going to the cross. I think I noted a few weeks ago that in just 18 short hours, he'll be hanging on the cross. And and so what he says in the upper room to his disciples as Judas has now left and he is there with the eleven is, is supremely important. Some of the weightiest words in the Bible. We... Um, sometimes don't fully appreciate that there are weightier portions of Scripture than others. All of it is God's Word. These are weightier than other parts of Scripture. And, and I heard one pastor theologian say recently, um, when we come to the upper room, we realize that no one interprets to us Jesus better than Jesus. No one interprets Jesus better than Jesus. He tells us, who he is and what's in his heart. And so in a focused way, we're going to see really now the beginning of that Paschal discourse, that suffering discourse here in John 14. And so we're looking at verses 1 through 14. And as always, that you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me. Now John records for us Jesus saying to the 11, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I will do it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, a number of years ago, I was engaged in an evangelistic ministry. And on the outside of a chapel um, on the boardwalk in New Jersey, in which we would engage thousands of people every summer as they walked by, usually cursing at us when they walked by. That was always fun. Uh, there was a sign that said, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And on one occasion, I was engaging two, um, two guys about my age, and, and they said, no, I you know, I think there's lots of ways to God. And I said, well, we'll see here on this sign Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And one of the guys said to me, well, that's not what he meant. And I said, well, what did he mean then? He said, well, he just means he's, he's one way to God. And I said, well, let's, let's go through this. Jesus said, I am the way. He uses the, the article, the. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he, and he said, yeah, I, I don't think that's what that means. And I said, I'm only reading the verse to you. Let's go through word by word. What do you understand by no one? So what does no one mean? Jesus says no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, when we think of John 14:6 and we all know that verse, I would imagine so well. We love that verse. It's one of the seven I am sayings of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. It is arguably the most pregnant of the I am sayings. Remember, Jesus says things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the light of the world. All of those I am sayings where He is claiming divinity. He is, he is the great I am that revealed Himself to Moses. And when He comes here to tell His disciples, He's not using this in an evangelistic sense. It's very interesting. Most people miss the context of John 14.6. He is not using this for evangelism. It certainly has a very prominent place in holding out the exclusivity of Jesus for the salvation of those that don't know Him. But Jesus is telling His disciples this to comfort their hearts. Isn't that interesting? Notice that that first verse, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, He has just told them If you go back to the end of chapter 13, he's told them, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he gives them the new commandment, which we heard about. And Peter totally misses the point. He's like, Lord, why can't we go with you? And and we saw how Jesus is always sort of correcting his disciples in a gentle manner, in a loving manner. He's helping them to understand the weaknesses of their own flesh. And he's also helping them to understand why they need him so much. And what he's come to do, and now he recognizes that that they are troubled in spirit. And everything that he says to them between verse 1 and 14 is for the purpose of spiritual comfort. Um, I think there's going to be a word there for us today that when we have hearts that are anxious and weighed down with cares and worries and fears and anxiety, that, that what Jesus says to his disciples here is what we need to hear to quiet our hearts when they are troubled by the prospect of suffering for Him, or being ostracized because of Him, or having uh, family members reject us because of Him, or any number of things that might trouble our hearts. And so as we look at this this morning, I want us to consider three things about the comfort that Jesus is seeking to bring to His disciples. First, I want us to consider the comfort from the Son's saving work, comfort from the Son's saving work. Then I want us to consider comfort from the Son's oneness with His Father. And then I want us to consider the comfort that we get from the Son's work in His people. The Son's work for His people, the Son's oneness with His Father, and the Son's work in His people. Well, very interesting. Jesus is going to the cross and He is weighed down Himself with, with uh, anxiety, in a sense, a, a, sinless, um, a sinless weight on his soul. Uh, he said back in, in chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. The holy soul of Jesus was weighed down with agony even before He went into the garden. He knew He was going to fall under the wrath of God. He knew that He was going to be cut off from fellowship with His Father. He knew that He was going to stand in the place of sinners and take what they deserve on Himself. And, and that filled His sinless soul with a weightiness, a heaviness, a, a sorrow. And yet, here's what's so interesting. In the same context, in which, in which Jesus says, now is my soul weighed down with sorrow. He recognizes that his disciples' souls are weighed down with sorrow because he has told them he's not going to be with them in a little bit and they can't come with him. And he's told them that one of them is going to betray him. And he's told Peter that he's going to deny him And Jesus in that moment when he could have been consumed with his own self-interest is focused on caring about their needs. That's really a marvelous thought. In that moment when Jesus, humanly speaking, should have been concerned and consumed only with himself, saw their needs and cared for their inmost heart needs. Um, one old theologian said it was the sorrows of their hearts which now occupied the great heart of love. It was the sorrows of their heart that now occupied the great heart of love. Another um, another writer, J.C. Ryle, said this, that Jesus saw in that their hearts were troubled for a variety of causes. Listen carefully. It was partly by seeing their master troubled in spirit back in chapter 13:21, It was partly by hearing that one of them would betray him. It was partly by the mysterious departure of Judas. It was partly by their master's announcement that he should only be with them a little while longer and that they could not come with him. And it was partly by the warning addressed to Peter that he was going to deny his master three times. Ryle says this, For all these reasons, this little company of weak believers was disquieted and cast down and anxious. And yet Jesus takes their anxiety to Himself and cares for the inmost needs of their hearts. Now, that should be an incredible comfort to us. Because at different times and in different seasons, every one of us has hearts that get anxious, worried, or weighed down with cares. And we can sometimes feel as though no one else understands what we're going through. And yet Jesus knows every thought and emotion and every inner working of the heart of every one of his people. And what he says to his disciples here, as he is not now focused on himself but on their need, he says to us, let not your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, Jesus is not well-wishing the disciples. You know, sometimes we we are terrible comforters. Somebody tells us something going on and we just say, you know, I just just hope it's going to go... I I really think it's going to go fine. You'll be fine. We don't know what we're talking about. We don't know how it's going to turn out. It could get way worse. What if somebody said to you, you know... I'm really worried this is going to turn out bad. And you're like, yeah, I think it could be way worse than you're concerned about. Here, Jesus knows everything. He sees in them a distressed spirit in all of them. They've given up everything to follow Him. He's telling them, I'm going to die. They're thinking, what's going to happen to us? They are weighed down. And He says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, look at this. Believe in God, believe also in Me. Now, Jesus is going to talk about His saving work here in a second. But the first thing He does is He focuses their attention on Himself. He's not saying He's not God. When He says, believe in God, believe also in Me, He's actually going to tell us in a moment, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. The the book opens by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. He's not saying God is God and Jesus is Jesus. What he's saying is, um and, and many people talk about believing in God, but and Jesus is going to explain if you're going to believe in God, you've got to believe in me. And and our focus, what he's doing is he's directing our focus on himself. He's saying the solution to not being troubled and anxious is to fix your eyes on me. That's the solution. He, he, is, he is recalibrating the compass to true north. Saying, when you're anxious, fix your eyes on Me. You believe in God? Believe in Me. Trust in Me. Come to Me. Abide in Me. Fix your gaze on Me from the eyes of your heart. Now, Jesus now says there in verse 2, In my father's house are many rooms. Now, the old King James Version has kind of ruined this for us, and and you all know if you grew up any time before the 90s that, that every translation was, In my father's house are many mansions, right? Elvis Presley sang that. We sang it in a hymn this morning. It actually does not say mansions anywhere in the Greek text at all whatsoever. It's a really bad archaic translation. What it says is, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, abodes, many places for you to abide. Now, in order to understand what he's saying here, we have to understand what he's appealing to. Now, we know that he's talking about heaven when he says, In my Father's house. But every time the phrase, the Father's house, is used in Scripture, It is a reference to the temple. It's a reference to the temple. The temple in the Old Covenant was the house of God. It was the dwelling place of God. It's where God came down and He manifested His presence in the Most Holy Place right on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood from the sacrifice was put to cover the the transgressions of the law of God that the people transgressed. The law was kept in the Ark. The blood went on the mercy seat. God came down and God dwelt in His house. And on the, outer, on the outer edges of the temple were dwelling places for the priests who ministered in the temple. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is preparing his disciples to understand that they are going to be priests, all believers are going to be priests in the true spiritual temple of God that they are going to have an abiding place in that temple. That they are going to be able to dwell in the presence of God. That they are going to be able to minister before God. That they are going to be in the place where God makes His dwelling known. Now, in in the New Covenant, you know this. The temple is first and foremost Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells. And then it is the church, as the people of God are gathered together as living stones in whom God dwells. And then it will be that heavenly temple, the new heavens and the new earth. And and Jesus is drawing together for His disciples in that appeal to that phrase, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, a, a, a sense in which He's saying, this is the privilege that you are going to have. You are going to have the privilege of abiding in the very presence of God forever. That's what I've come to do. Why should your heart not be troubled? Because you are going to dwell in the temple of God, the heavenly sanctuary, in the presence of Christ forever. Look, when Jesus says here, in my Father's house are many rooms, He then goes on to say, if it were not so, would I have told you or I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the mysteries of the New Testament is that in almost every case in which heaven, or even the new heavens and the new earth are mentioned, we are told almost nothing about what it's going to be like in any sort of propositional way. But what we are told recurrently is that heaven is being with Jesus. When Jesus speaks about heaven, He says, I'm coming again. That where I am, there you may be also. When we think about, um, when we think about the the hereafter, that's the central way we should think about it, is heaven means going to be with Jesus. Um, I have heard many people, and I, you know, we, we just cheapen things so much in life. Is there going to be golf in heaven? Who cares? Who cares? I mean, heaven's being with the eternal, glorious Son for eternity in the presence of the One that redeems His people from hell and wrath and destruction and brings them to everlasting joy and love and fellowship in the presence of God. Are we going to eat food in heaven? Who cares? Really, our desires, as C.S. Lewis says, are too low. They're too low. Jesus wants to raise them. There's a dwelling place. It's the Father's house. I am going to be there. You are going to dwell there. Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Why should you not be anxious? Because you're going to be with Christ. Believe in God. If you do, believe in Me. Now, what does it mean... What does it mean that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us? I, I remember as a kid hearing all those songs about, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions and I'm going to go get my mansion and, you know, I think I must have been four or five and I'm, I'm thinking about Jesus being in heaven like working away on building mansions so you can have one. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was not in heaven with a hammer and a nail building you a mansion. Jesus was nailed to the cross to build you a mansion. When Jesus says, I go, to a place, I go to prepare a place for you, where does he go? He goes to the cross to shed his blood to secure a place for you and me in glory. And then he goes to the Father in the ascension. You know, it's really remarkable how many theologians jump straight to the ascension of Christ and his intercession. rightly so, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and they bypass the cross, he's first going to the cross. Um, Here, Jesus is speaking of himself as the great high priest. He's just mentioned the temple. And there's going to be dwelling places for us in the temple. But what he's now saying when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he is both saying, I am going to sacrifice myself for you on the cross to secure your place in glory. And then I am going to the right hand of the Father and I'm going to ever live to make intercession for you. The two roles of the priest, to sacrifice and to intercede. That's what he's saying. Your heart should not be troubled about anything because Christ is the great high priest who prepares a place for his people. Um, A.W. Pink, the Baptist theologian of the 20th century, said the Lord Jesus has procured the right by his death on the cross for every believing sinner to enter heaven, he has prepared for us a place by entering heaven as our representative and taking possession of it on behalf of his people. He has prepared for us a place by entering the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, carrying our names in with him. Just like the priest took the names of the children of Israel in the ephod, Christ sacrifices himself for his people, and then represents them. And that's how you can be assured there's a place for you in the Father's house. Um, I would argue this morning that nothing should bring more comfort to troubled and anxious hearts than that. To quiet our hearts. Jesus says, doesn't he, to his disciples, don't fear those that can kill the body and afterward have nothing more that they can do. I'll tell you, fear him, who after he has destroyed, can throw soul and body in hell. And yet here he's saying, don't fear what men can do to you because I've prepared a place for you. I've secured for you that eternal dwelling. Um, I love this quote. Ian Hamilton says, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. I want to ask you this morning if you are meditating on those truths recurrently. The Lord Jesus wants us to meditate. And notice he says to his disciples in verse 4, "...and you know the way to where I am going." he is sort of assuming that the disciples should understand these things from the Old Testament Scriptures, that they, they should understand what Isaiah said about the suffering servant, that they should understand the, those things that the Old Testament prepared us for, to, to understand the spiritual reality of them in the New Covenant. And yet the disciples don't understand. Notice Thomas in verse 5 says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, you're going to have two things happen here in the rest of this passage. You're going to have Thomas asking Jesus one question and then Jesus answering him in a way that Thomas doesn't expect. And then you're going to have Philip asking Jesus a second question and Jesus answering him in a way that he wouldn't expect. And notice the first question, and it's still focused on the Son's saving work, notice Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is what theologians have called the exclusivity of Jesus. Um, If you want to make unbelievers really mad, you tell them this. You can only come to God through Jesus. Let's go over the words. What does no one mean? No one comes to the Father. No one except through me. He is the only mediator. He is the only way to God. I don't think Jesus is talking here about how we go to God in prayer necessarily. I think he's talking about being reconciled to God. How can we be reconciled? And it's only through him. Um, He is God's appointed mediator. And it is only by his saving work. And there is no other way. I don't care how spiritual someone makes something else sound. It is not true. And that's why I think Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That in himself, he has everything that we need. Uh, Thomas Akempis, the mystic, I would not recommend that you read this book, The Imitation of Christ, but he has a great saying where he says, without Jesus being the way, there is no going. Without Him being the truth, there is no knowing. Without being Him being the life, there is no living. He is in Himself sufficient. He has everything that we need. And He alone has everything that we need. Now, from there, notice that Jesus says, if you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Um, in this short passage, I, I've been told that there are more references to God the Father than in any other passage of this length in the Bible. Jesus constantly is speaking of the Father and himself in relation to the Father. And notice what he says here. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. There is there is a, a perfect divine identification between Jesus and the Father. And yet, there is distinction between Jesus and the Father. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is at one and the same time saying, I and My Father are one, and He is distinguishing Himself from the Father. This is why, by the way, John 14-16 through is probably the greatest defense of the Trinity in the Bible from the heart of Jesus Himself. He is telling us about His divine identification. He is God. He is is claiming that. He is claiming oneness with his Father. And yet he is also distinguishing himself as a different person in the Godhead. Notice that Philip now asks that question in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Um, It's very interesting. Philip is like so many. and You have to listen carefully to this. Remember at the beginning of this passage, Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. So he puts the focus on himself. Now, Philip does what so many do. Okay, yeah, I hear you, Jesus, but I want to go straight to God. Show us the Father and it's sufficient. He he doesn't get it. That you get to the Father by going through the Son. You only get to the Father by going through the Son because the Son is one with the Father. And notice Jesus' response to Philip. Jesus, and I love this. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you do not yet know me, Philip? What is going on? The Father is speaking through the Son. Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, as the Father speaks through him, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me? Now, there is a word here for us that we can be in the presence of Christ, gathered together as His people, at the table, we can hear him preached. We can, we can have him right in front of us and yet not know him. Isn't that interesting? He says to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? Have I been with you so long? And yet you do not really yet know who I am. We, we, can, have, we can have immature understandings of who Jesus is. And not understand that there's always more of the fullness of deity in him. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's always more in Christ. This is why Paul can say in, in Ephesians that he was praying that believers would know the length and breadth and the width and the height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. There's always more. And so we should hear what Jesus says here. And the right response would be for me to say, I want more. I want to know him more. I want to know more of what's in him. He's with me. I want to know him. He's revealing himself to me. I want more of that revelation. Um, Notice Jesus comes straight out and says at the end of verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Perfect, divine indwelling of the members of the Godhead. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. If you want to come to God, you go through Jesus. If you want to know more of God, you come to know more of Christ. Now, there are three persons in the Godhead. We don't want to exalt one over the other, but He is the mediator. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Now, I want us to consider finally the comfort because Jesus is again telling His disciples these things to comfort their hearts. The comfort from the Son's work in His people. Now, notice, notice um, in verse... Eleven. Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me or else believe me on account of the works or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he's done these miracles. He's raised Lazarus. He's healed the blind man. He's done a, a litany of miracles to show who he is and prove his deity. He says, if you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe on account of the works. And then, and I want you to focus on this at the end here, verses 12 through 14, and this is some of the most difficult teaching in the New Testament. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works he will do because I'm going to the Father. Now, the sort of the Pentecostal New Wave charismatics are going to tell you that the work... See, Jesus is saying, you're going to do more powerful works than me. No, he's not. He's not saying that. He's not saying... You're going to go out there and if you're really believing in me, you're going to do these really awesome, powerful miracles. He's not saying that. Um, There are other theologians. Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands in the 19th century, uh, said that the greater works the disciples are here being told they're going to do are the transformation of cultures. The Christianizing of cultures. I don't think that's it either. So I don't think... Jesus is saying you're going to do more powerful miracles than me. Neither do I think he's saying you're going to do greater works and you're going to be a world changer for Christendom. I don't think he's saying that. So what is he saying? Jesus has just said the works that I do prove who I am. They show others that I am who I am telling you I am. And you're going to do greater works because I'm going to be at work in you. And others are going to know who I am because of what I'm doing in you and through you. Notice, Jesus says greater works than these, the one who believes will do because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the end goal. So, so he's going to the Father. He's going to be at work in his people. The works that he does through his people are going to be a more far-reaching evidence of who Jesus is so that the Father is glorified in the Son. What does that mean? That means when you think about your role as a believer, it means that we are carrying Jesus with us where we go. Um, we are His ambassadors. He has left us here to bring glory to Him in both our witness and in our deeds of love and mercy. And as we live out the Christian life believing in Him, bearing witness to Him, and, and carrying out deeds of love and mercy, the watching world realizes, even if they hate Him, that He really is God manifest in the flesh. The works that he's done, he's going to do greater ones in his people and through them so that the Father is glorified in the Son. So that I ought to think is what I'm doing and saying bringing glory to Christ and to the Father, or is it subtracting from it? That's a really good question for us to ask. Um, I want to leave you with just a couple thoughts this morning first I want to just recognize that we are going to have times and seasons in which our hearts are troubled by a thousand different things and and Jesus is giving us the remedy to quiet our hearts when they're anxious when they're fearful when they are displaced when they are wayward he brings us back and he focuses us on him he focuses us on his saving work he reminds us this morning I have gone and I have already prepared a place for my people. And I want to bring you where I am. And that means we should live in light of that. We should live in light of the hope of the return of Christ. We should live in light of what he's already accomplished for us, what he's secured for us. And then we should recognize that we have full access to God in Jesus and only in Jesus. What a privilege that is to quiet a troubled heart you know, you can go boldly to the throne of grace right now in a way that even the Old Testament saints couldn't do. There's a a fullness for believers now through Christ. And then I want to leave you with this thought that the Lord Jesus is eager to do works in us so that the Father would be glorified in Him. And that we would live in light of that. That we would seek to be faithful representatives of the Lord Jesus wherever we go in our words and our actions, that we would be careful, that we would think, am I representing Christ well? Because he wants me to. He wants to bring glory to his Father, and he wants us to bring glory to him in those ways. I hope that you'll be encouraged to fix the eyes of your hearts on him this morning. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge this morning that there are many times when our hearts are weighed down with anxiety, when they are troubled, when they are fearful, when they perhaps are um, shaken by circumstances of life, and we thank you and praise you that the word that Your Son has spoken to His disciples. He speaks to us this morning. We pray that You would give us great comfort and consolation in the knowledge that Christ has already gone to the cross and to Your right hand to prepare a place for us. Lord Jesus, would You comfort our hearts this morning as we come to the table? Would You prepare us to feed on You, to have our souls quieted and filled and comforted in the knowledge of what you've done for us in taking our sin on yourself. And so prepare us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.